0: Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. If you haven't heard, we just launched three new granolas, a grain-free apple walnut keto granola, and two ancient grain varieties in vanilla chocolate chip and honey peanut butter. I have to admit, these new flavors are out of control good. Like all Purely granolas, all three are sweetened with coconut sugar, baked with coconut oil, and crafted with the best premium ingredients in order to taste absolutely amazing and make you feel good too. So we have an exclusive deal for our Live Purely listeners on our new granola flavors. Use code LivePurely, that's L-I-V-E-P-U-R-E-L-Y, for 20% off all online orders now through June 30th on PurelyElizabeth.com. Go ahead and stack up on your new faves, and you'll definitely be thanking me later. Today's guest is Dr. Uma Naidu, a Harvard trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and a trained nutrition specialist. Her passions come together in her nutritional psychiatry practice. Dr. Uma Naidu founded and directs the first hospital based nutritional psychiatry program in the United States at Mass General Hospital and is the Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at Mass General Hospital Academy while serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She is the author of This Is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, PTSD, ADHD, anxiety, OCD, and more. In today's episode... Puma shares her approach to holistic root cause medicine and how a sound diet can help treat and prevent a wide range of psychological and cognitive health issues just with the power of our fork. She's an absolute wealth of information explaining the gut and brain connection, the power of the microbiome, how specific foods we eat can make us feel good or not so good, the importance of sleep for our gut and mood, and so much more. She talks about her favorite supplements, mental health hacks, and favorite sources of gut-supporting foods. Keep listening to hear all about her passion for food, nutrition, and mental health. Dr. Uma Naidoo, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It is truly an honor to have you, and I am so excited to hear all of your knowledge. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I've been excited to speak to you too. It's lovely (laughs) to meet So at Purely Elizabeth, our mission is really to help you thrive on your wellness journey. And I know that you will be able to share a wealth of knowledge to help our community with that. But I would love to start at the beginning of your journey in bringing you to become a nutritional psychiatrist. And you have such an incredible background as a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a professional chef, And a trained nutrition specialist. So, what got you to where you are today? Well, thanks, thanks for asking. It's a little bit of a long story,
1: uh, but 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 you, I think you might like it. So, it began in my childhood, Elizabeth. You know, I was born into a a very large South Asian family, and there was a lot of family dinners. There was a lot of food, nutrients, love, but also a lot of scientific talk. My uncles, my mom, uh, my aunts, uh, most of. Many of them were physicians, allopathic physicians, but there were a few Ayurvedic practitioners. And as a young child, I skipped out of preschool, wanted to spend the time with my maternal grandmother to whom the book is dedicated. And she was a home cook and we would pick fresh vegetables from the garden, we'd prepare food, I'd hang out with her. And I did this during the day because my mom was in medical school. But I think that there's a way in which our environments also sort of carve out who we are and influence us because my grandparents taught me meditation, they taught me yoga. And so as I moved forward in the world, I, the one thing I didn't do, Elizabeth, is I didn't cook because there were so many cooks in the kitchen and, and, and they, were, they were great cooks. So I hung around and tasted a lot of really, really yummy food. So a few things happened later on where I brought a lot of this forward. I learned how to cook. When I learned how to cook, it really began to be a creative space for me, a way that I could de-stress at the end of the day. I looked forward to it. And I began really understanding what I was eating, what I was cooking. But when it came to learning about mental health and psychopharmacology and psychiatry, I felt there needed to be more tools in the toolbox for people because it was fine to prescribe a medication and have the power of that prescription pad, but people really needed more. And that really came from that holistic background with which I was raised. And so I practice a holistic, integrated, and functional form of psychiatry. I'm always looking for root cause. I always include many different ways to feel better, which all of which can work together. It doesn't have to be polarized and be one thing or another. And it has to be integrated. I think that medicine in the United States tends to be siloed because it is so highly specialized. And while we get excellent care, say we go and see our renal doctor, our nephrologist, the truth is that all parts of our body work together and you know the science of the microbiome is really teaching us that more and more. All to say that as I, I understood that this was all important, I studied nutrition, I went to culinary school, really as an ode to Julia Child, who was my food hero. <laughs> and as I was learning to cook back in the day and couldn't afford a cable television, I watched her on PBS and uh, that really gave me confidence. And I realized that she did this as her second career. I thought, well, I love food, you know, why don't I learn more about it? And I was very really fortunate when things came together in my informing the clinic that I had have at mass general, and
0: uh, I can practice what i love that's amazing uh, i w- I wish I could learn all of those things myself <laughs> so one in five Americans has a diagnosable mental health condition, and I think yeah. this year more than ever we're learning that it it's a, a real problem that we face yeah. Yeah. so can you go a little bit more into depth into what your approach is versus our current traditional system and really what has gone wrong and what, mm-hmm. how are you fixing it with your approach? Sure. You know, I think
1: a few things have evolved over time which have led us off a path to, say, healthy eating. Let's start there because I think industrialization of how food has changed and evolved the different types of farming methods both for uh, plants as well as animal farming have all evolved and they've left us in a state where what's in our environment and what's in our food um, is not necessarily always healthy and so we have to be informed consumers when we purchase food when we buy food when we grow food so i think that's one one component that is probably the most difficult because i don't think we can necessarily change the food system, but we can make choices about what we eat and, and how we eat and which where we obtain our food, for example. Then I think the other component is that mental health is the silent pandemic. We have seen throughout the pandemic that mental health statistics are on the rise in, in the summer we saw from the CDC that at least 11% of Americans had considered suicide, had thought about it, which wow. was a very high number. And we know that 20% of teens have considered suicide. So we know that these things are pretty serious. And I'm, I'm looking at the most serious condition, of course, in mental health, which is we, we obviously want to help people if they're feeling that, that emotionally distraught and feeling suicidal. But along the way as well, depression, anxiety, trauma, substance abuse, and insomnia have all increased. So we're at a point where how do we rework this? How do we live with this? We live with whatever normal means now and also feel emotionally fit. And this is why I think food is powerful because, yes, you you should see your doctor if you're not feeling well, and you should discuss a medication that will be up to that discussion between you and your doctor. But here's the thing. We all have to eat. We eat several meals a day. You have the power at the end of your fork. I mean, you can literally start making slow, steady habit changes to feel better just by the choices you're making. And we know that because my gut microbiome is so powerful. And we know that that science has informed us that what we eat then gets broken down into substances or products in our body, which can be good or not so good and it really depends on that healthy choice or that sort of unhealthy choice. And that's where I'm hoping to make a greater impact is that people just understand those things, then, then perhaps we can try to make some changes. We, you know, uh, it's easier than taking on the food system, uh, uh, that,
0: that much I know. Absolutely. So as you talk about certain foods making us feel better, I'm so fascinated by the connection of food and mood and how certain foods truly make us feel one way versus another. Mm -hmm. It would be great if you could talk about really how specifically how the diet impacts our brain.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we can go. We'll go. We'll go into specific foods as well. But I think the way that it starts is as to understand that doctors who studied a few decades ago at medical school were not studying gut microbiome because the science was just not there yet. So there's this new cutting edge area over the last couple of decades, where between say 2013 and 2017, there were probably about 12 or 13 thousand journal articles written because of the amount of research being done. But where it really has helped nutritional psychiatry is that we now understand that the gut and brain are connected. Uh, We've always known that these organs are in the same body, but they are actually connected on multiple other levels. Firstly, they arise from the same exact cells in the embryo. Then they remain connected between the gut and brain are connected by the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which you've heard me say is a two-way superhighway um, allowing for chemical messaging all the time and between these two organs. And then people have heard about medications like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Zoloft, but more than 90 to 95% of the receptors actually in the gut. So when someone is prescribed such a medication, they often for the first five to 10 days have gastrointestinal discomfort for that reason. And then I think in pandemic times, it's very important for people to understand that about more than 70% of our immune system is in the gut. So food is a very powerful tool that we have. and. We can make that choice that nurtures those gut microbes, feeding them fiber from you know, fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains, or we can feed them fast foods and junk foods uh, and processed foods. And then we feeding them bad microbes. If the bad microbes are fed, and now uh, they overcome the good microbes, and when that happens, that's the basis of how inflammation or dysbiosis gets set up, and that's the basis for leaky gut. But it's also the basis for that feedback loop to the brain and neuroinflammation getting set up. So people have an uptick of mental health symptoms, uh, if they already have some, or they get new onset of symptoms that, they, that seemingly come from nowhere, but some of it might be what they're eating.
0: So starting out with our gut, knowing that that's such a strong connection to how we feel, what are some of those foods or even non-foods that can mm-hmm. help us fundamentally if you're starting out of like, these are things you must do to help your gut? Absolutely. Well,
1: we'll start with the fact that most Americans focus on grams of protein, but in fact, we are solely lacking in grams of fiber that we eat in our diet. So the number one thing to start with is to increase the fiber just in your diet. And you can do that so simply, Elizabeth, just by adding more servings of leafy greens and other vegetables to your day. To each meal, if you're making an omelet, add some uh, spinach to it. If, you, if you're having a smoothie, add some greens to it or other veggies. If you're having lunch, have a have a lovely salad with the colors of the rainbow, because the colors and the biodiversity of those different vegetables bring back biodiversity to the gut which is supposed to be one of the most important things shown in research to help us and help a healthy gut. So simply adding in more vegetables every single day, I like to say about four-fifths of your plate should be some type of uh, plant of some different kind because they're low calorie, they are super healthy, they are so rich in phytonutrients, iron and folate and things like leafy greens. And basically so many nutrients like the b vitamins that we need for good good brain health zinc magnesium that we need so load up on those and then extend that to other fiber rich foods which we seemingly ignore because we may not realize the importance so beans lentils legumes also are rich in fiber also plant-based protein so those are things you can add to a salad a soup a side dish or even a main dish and then um, healthy whole grains if you consume them, and nuts and seeds. So nuts and seeds are great to add to salads, to make a chia pudding, to make hemp milk. You know, super easy to do and include these sources. So that's one way to really, really up your game with with your gut, because you you're basically nurturing those gut microbes, feeding them what they need. Then the other type of food are prebiotic foods and prebiotic foods are basically, let's just break it down. They're things like garlic, uh, leeks, onions, the allium onion family, also asparagus, bananas, oats, things like that. Those also bring back a form of fiber that the gut needs. So prebiotic foods, fiber rich foods, and then think about fermented foods. This is another great category. So fermented foods could be miso, tempeh, kombucha. Kefir, many different things that, again, you can add in to your foods. So starting there are just some good ways uh, to go to sort
0: of, let's say, reset or help your gut health. Do you think we should be, everyone should be taking a probiotic? So, you know, the, the opinion on this is split.
1: Um, and, and then I'll share what I think. Some doctors feel that the probiotic is a probiotics are a billion dollar industry. And do they really actually impact any positive health benefits? Others feel that if you're taking a probiotic and you are noticing an improvement in how you're feeling, by all means continue because so many of us have gut issues and it's important to pay attention to that. Where I'm at with it is I tend to not polarize any of my beliefs, whether it's a type of food, including or excluding something. So I feel it's highly individual. I had a patient just the other day say to me, I've had bloating. Someone suggested this probiotic that I try. it's It's a really good, clean probiotic that I found. And she's noticed that she's had decreased bloating over the last week. So that's significant. That, you know, she started taking it, she noticed a change. And so I said, well, by all means, continue taking it because if it's helping you, let's see that it continues to be of benefit. So it does become highly individual, but I've also had other people where upping your game with prebiotic foods easy to do, and then increasing those other food groups can also be super healthy for their gut. So I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. If you are on a probiotic and you're feeling good in it, by all means. But it's not the only way to improve your gut health.
0: Sure. Well, I think that's a good overall message, Just in, It's always about personalized nutrition and what it works is. for one person does not necessarily work for another. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So. As we talk about the gut, how important is sleep and how important is sleep for our mental health? It would be great. I know that many of us are slow, so yeah. much sleep deprived that yeah. we don't realize, I think, how important that is.
1: I think that's such a great question, Elizabeth, because, you know, um, there's even a term that we're using in, in certainly when I'm writing articles called corona somnia, which is, you know, people are not sleeping well during the pandemic. They're very stressed. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were watching way too much news and information that was scaring us, so that that didn't help. But, you know, sleep is so integral to our mental well-being. But sleep is also one of those things that interacts with the gut microbiome as well. So stress impacts sleep, food impacts sleep. But, one of the ways in which sleep can impact our mood or anxiety is that you just when you wake up exhausted when you're not sleeping restfully, you have less energy to start the day, you feel more anxious, you feel just more fatigued, and often that can just lower your mood so it becomes important for us to think about look what we're in this state right now, this is how the world is. how can we?" improve things? How can we pay attention to good sleep hygiene? Some easy tips are having, if you drink coffee, have it early in the day. Don't have more than a couple of cups because some people can tolerate more, but a lot of people can't sleep if they drink coffee after about 2 p.m then it becomes you if you're leaning on a glass of red wine to put you to sleep it's going to affect your sleep architecture over time so you know maybe have it early in the evening don't only depend on that being the way that you're going to sleep because it's going to stop disrupt your sleep and then things like blue light things like not supermarketing late at night i know that we have those conveniences available but the truth is the lighting is not great for us so that type of thing really does impact impact your sleep and then even shutting off devices and calming your body down a few hours before sleep, you know, having an earlier dinner and then, you know doing other activities which especially with the weather getting better taking an evening walk spending some outdoor time just getting that breath of fresh air is so much better than just watching television or being on your devices because you are giving yourself you're giving your brain the message i'm slowing down i've eaten i'm taking a slow gentle walk i'm or i'm doing some other activity gardening or maybe something else that you do that is getting your body slowed down versus revving it up. And, and I think that becomes important too, but it's so integri- integrally related to, to our mental well-being.
0: So switching gears to more specifics on mental well-being and your book, this is Your Brain on Food, which I loved reading, and it was so interesting to me. So I had gone back to nutrition school in 2007, and I remember in that program having Dr. Mark Hyman there talking about seeing a child who had ADHD and seeing what his handwriting looked like which was like total chicken scratch and then he (laughs) put him on a gluten-free diet and did all these other things and the child ended up having perfect handwriting and I that was my moment of wow you know food as medicine and how food Mm -hmm. affects us is incredible and that's what led me down this journey but It's incredible, I think, to see how much has changed from 2007 till now, where before it seemed more anecdotal. And I think in your book where you have all of this research on really how food and lifestyle can change so many of these mental conditions. So I would love if you can kind of unpack more about your book and how foods help fight depression, PTSD, anxiety, and more. Sure, Elizabeth, it's about paying attention to the
1: gut microbiome like we've shared, and then it's about finding the right foods for the right condition. The way that I break it down in my book is a couple of, you know, divided into chapters, but also within the chapters are um, lists at at the end, which are foods to embrace and foods to avoid. And why does this become so important? Because there are many foods that we are consuming, which we don't realize impact mental health. We may think that let's go with the foods that are not the best the ones we should you know think about maybe being a little bit more conservative about starting to cut back so ultra processed processed junk foods fast foods those foods actually are not just bad for our metabolic health like type 2 diabetes or obesity they also affect our mental well-being and studies have shown this so starting to pare back on those foods becomes super important and then processed vegetable oils which are frequently used in mm. fast food restaurants because they cost saving right so those are pro inflammatory they just increase inflammation in our body so gut inflammation will become brain inflammation and that becomes important just to to you know to weed out in your diet Artificial sweetness. Sometimes people think I'm, I'm struggling with sugar. Let me try an artificial sweetener. For the most part, many of them have negative impacts with mental well-being. There might be some newer ones which we haven't, we don't yet have the research on for mental health. But um, for the most part, that's not the direction you you want to go in. So, you know, whether it's a sugar-sweetened beverage or diet soda, they have their different levels of impact. And then there's the trans fats, which have been shown in studies to worsen behavioral aggression. And, you know, so it's processed, ultra processed, the junk foods, fast foods, added and refined sugars. You know, my concept is eat the orange, skip the straw-bought oranges, right? Because the <laughs> whole orange has everything you need in it, the fiber nutrients, the vitamins that you need, whereas the straw-bought oranges has a fiber removed, you know, no matter what the the the... The, the the bottle or the cotton says um, really the actual fiber is missing and love the other nutrients so that's one way to think about it and then foods that you can start including really go back to what helps your gut health and then specifics of what have, helps different conditions so different conditions for example omega-3 fatty acids have been tested and shown to help mood they help anxiety they help several conditions Why? Because they're anti-inflammatory, they have antioxidant properties, and you can obtain them easily from food sources. So if you do consume fish, sockeye salmon, wild sockeye salmon is a good source, but if you, or anchovies, for example, but if you don't consume fish, they're plant-based sources like hemp seeds, chia seeds, flax seeds, that you can also obtain it there. So that's one thing, and then the other thing I, other thing I will often talk about are things like spices, which have some really hidden benefits which we don't even realize. And then what I do in the book is look at the different conditions and then break them down into the different foods, and there are some overlap of some foods, but they're also the foods to avoid that are different in, that, that tend to differ for certain specific conditions.
0: So if we take, say, anxiety, for example, which is Mm -hmm. probably at a heightened level for everybody this year, what are some more specifics for that that we should have and should not have?
1: Absolutely. So starting off with anxiety... It turns out that a lot of the artificial sweeteners actually drive anxiety, so you want to keep away from those. But foods that you can actually embrace, I always like to say fiber is your friend when you're anxious. And the reason is that fiber-rich foods are more complex carbohydrates, so they break down more slowly in the body. So you will feel different if you have a sugary donut for breakfast versus a more fiber-rich food. So if you had a cheer pudding, or or oats, or some of the really fibre-rich cereals, Elizabeth, that that you that you all make, there's the way in which those break down more slowly in the body, and you you don't have a spike of your insulin with a crashing of your emotional self because you know the, your blood sugar is going all, is really all over the place after something like a sugary donut. When you're eating more fiber complex, uh, fiber rich complex foods, they're just breaking down more slowly, and your food is broken out in more even keel, and you also feel calmer in that way. So I think fiber-rich foods is not to be understated in terms of uh, anxiety. Adding in those fermented foods really helps the gut. Adding in things like tryptophan-rich foods like chickpeas become important. Vitamin D-rich foods are important because vitamin D has been shown to improve both mood and anxiety. But one of the best sources of vitamin D is spending 10 10 minutes outside in um, daylight will help you. And some of the other things that are often overlooked for anxiety are things like teas, lavender tea, passionflower, and chamomile really, really help people feel calmer, taking or knowing foods that are rich in magnesium because low magnesium has been shown to spike anxiety. And then spices like turmeric, uh, and I always say have have it with a pinch of black pepper, to make it more bioavailable to your brain and to your body. So those are some things to get you started. There, there are several others. It's one one way to to start head head in the right in the right direction.
0: Well, that's a great list to start with. So that brings me to a great question on in your clinic when you first start seeing a client, a patient where do you begin with those new habits that someone might have who might not be healthy and it might be overwhelming to change their diet or to start working out or how do you what's your approach look like sure so it it, it, like,
1: like we mentioned personalized nutrition um nutritional psychiatry in my clinic has become highly personalized as well because of the gut microbiome research and understanding what we do for me it really comes down to one very important thing what is someone willing to change When I first opened my clinic, I would want to provide lists of things for people to do. But really, not only my understanding of psychology, but then understanding what was overwhelming versus doable for people helped me to understand that it's much easier to work with people around, what are you willing to fix? What's one thing that you're not happy with? that you could change and then my role is really to help them change it by providing better solutions so maybe their uh, downfall is a candy bar or or eating a ton of sugary foods that they really are having difficulty giving up what are the healthy ways that we can have you have something that is sweetened um, or has a sweet taste but is not really going to be as disruptive to your brain or to your body. And i like to start with that one habit. And what I find is, it might even be one thing, it may seem small, it may seem minor, but the moment someone follows that for at least a week and they notice the difference, I've had people call me back after two days and say, Say I want to do more because I noticed immediately giving up some this food or adding in that food. Most often people love it because I add in foods for them and not giving up stuff. And most most of diet culture <laughs> in America is about giving something up, uh, so they love it and they're like, oh, I, you know. I I didn't know I would feel so great if I did this way, did that. Then they want to do more. That's when you can start building them slowly up in terms of a list of things that they can do. But it really starts with one thing that they want to change or they are aware that is problematic that they... And and then they just need help tweaking a plan around it. And then we build up all of the other components around that as well.
0: And when you're working with clients, do you also go the route of traditional medication along with it sometimes, really blending the two? Absolutely. So I still prescribe medications. And one of the things I do is I work
1: with their prescriber and the individual might come and see me just for a nutritional psychiatry evaluation. In other situations, if I feel someone needs a medication, I've been known to recommend that as the first step, and it doesn't mean that they can't also be using food alongside that as well. But most of the time, I would say that the approach is a, my approach? My patients seem to like the approach because it's also holistic and integrated. So we talk about exercise, we talk about movement, we talk about you know whether it's tai chi, whether it's yoga, whether it's qigong, whether it's mindfulness meditation, something that a different form of psychotherapy. It all comes together as a plan for them to really embrace their well-being.
0: So I'm sure that this is a tough question to answer, but I'm so intrigued hearing these stories of how food changes somebody. So I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear a story about a patient throughout your career that really changed your practice, that opened your eyes, and you couldn't believe, I guess, how Mm -hmm. this approach changed them. Absolutely. And one of my favorites
1: is a young woman that I treated who's not doing very well, but whom I treated some years ago when my clinic first started, and she was referred to me by a gastroenterologist. She was 39 years old at the time and healthy, otherwise doing well. And she walked into my office saying, I I know you're the doctor, but I really need Zoloft. I'm having serious panic attacks, and this has never happened to me before, and I feel terrible. And after we uncovered and unpacked the situation and the story, it turned out that she'd never had mental health issues before. But tracing it back, she had had a, a really positive uh, promotion at work about 18 months to two years before. So, from being someone who lived in the Boston area and walked her dog, went to the gym every day or every other day, she liked to exercise, but she did it did, it, did a little bit every day. And, you know, cooking at home, going out for dinner maybe once on a weekend, once or twice with friends. She was now, because of this promotion, in airports almost all the time, traveling most days of the week, seldom eating meals at home, eating fast foods, junk foods, processed foods in airports on airplanes. And when she arrived in certain cities, places were closed, so she'd be eating out of the bar fridge in the evening because she was hungry. She maintained exercise regularly, so she hadn 't gained weight. But when we really figured it out, she had really she disrupted her microbiome. she had gut dysbiosis going on, and she had when she was asked she said well that 's why i'm going to see the gastroenterologist. I had this bloating and this discomfort, and I was wondering what's going on with 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 my gastrointestinal system. But what it happened is everything that she was eating over that period of time were all the foods that we talk about cutting back on, being cautious about. She was drinking two one to two glasses of wine almost every other night, if not every evening, because there was always a networking dinner. And there was pressure to have more drinks with everyone. And even though she didn't want the alcohol, she might, you know, she might have usually had a glass of wine here and there, but it wasn't something she liked. Uh, she was under pressure to sort of fit in. She'd developed habits where she was trying to keep that energy going. So she, from not being a candy bar eater, she was, you know, eating M&Ms in the afternoon. So all these things that, you know, she hadn't realized had evolved as her the great success of her job had changed. But when she realized that and we put it together and we came up with a plan where she started to make, she started to bring back her old habits into her new life. So whether it was she started packing multiple snacks, she packed a snack bag when she traveled, she made sure she had an empty bottle of water so she was always hydrating. She gave up that second glass of wine and she switched to something that looked like a cocktail but was actually pretty innocent but mostly had water fresh fruit in it, you know, just so that she could feel part of the crowd, but still, and still be part of the event, but not be consuming that alcohol, which wasn't, you know, wasn't helping her gut. Uh, because she was now drinking more, it than she was used to. Things like she would, when she arrived in a city, she would plan ahead. She would pick up snacks and ask for a fridge in a hotel room. So she had even a few snacks. So she wasn't hungry. Even if it was a piece of fruit. She wasn't then eating the candy or eating at eating fast foods because, you know, when she arrived late, that was what was open. And over time she we were able to heal her gut. She was one of the few people that didn't actually need a medication, she was functioning well enough that we were able to work together just with a nutritional psychiatry plan. But with some people in a similar situation, they might start a medication and we, we might be able to lower it over time and even at times discontinue it. But all that's always done in consultation, either if I'm the prescriber or with whoever their prescribing doctor is. But it really stuck with me because when she realized what it was, it made it, it was a big aha moment for her. And she was having all of the success, but she hadn't realized how many things in her life had changed.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: because she was exercising and she hadn't gained weight, she was very active, it didn't occur to her that food was the one big thing that had changed. It's almost like that uh, bringing that to awareness and realizing that even things that she used to do, like mindfulness practice, all of that had stopped. And so she would, she now, even up until today, when she went, not during the pandemic, but when she flies, She always meditates for the first 10 minutes because then she knows if she flies every other day, she's definitely getting in some meditation. And you know, just it just was a really great way to see how we were able to integrate it, but she was able to heal and really didn't to stop being anxious, the symptoms fell away, and really a great example of achieving her mental fitness again.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. Of course. So In your clinic, and we'll say that you did found the Nutritional Lifestyle Psychiatry Program at Mass General, the first clinic of its kind in the US, which is incredible. How was that first received by colleagues? And at the time, was that this really foreign concept? Is my first question, my follow up to that is how do you grow that? How do we get more people doing what you're doing around the country?
1: So the first part, I was fortunate to really have my work supported by the leadership in my department who had the, you know, um, the chair of my department did some of the seminal studies in folate, methylfolate, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids. So being someone who appreciated that, I think there was a vision of my immediate mentors as well as the senior staff at my hospital. Now, you know, it's an interesting question you say because it's not as though there was this massive change in how everyone behaved, but as people have, I'll tell you with my book emerging, it really is something that became um, really brought it to more people's attention. And because prior to that, it was a lot of people seeking that kind of work who were coming to me. But a book somehow gets the message out in a different way, which being a debut author, I didn't realize. So the short answer is my work was supported. So I was able to start the small clinical service and grow it from there. I think the second question, Elizabeth, is something that I'm trying to work on in a much broader way because the reality is in a field that is, well, people like myself have practiced it for many, many, many years and studied it, You know, it's a more nascent field and a more nascent term that people are using. So my next objective is actually to create more educational programming. We did just release a program through the Mass General Academy, which is a teaching platform. We just released a cooking um, series for mental health professionals, which is a combination of me cooking nutritional psychiatry recipes teaching about it and partnered with a colleague who talks about family dynamics and family therapy. And so dinner conversations and how to how to use food in a positive way. And in a similar way, I'd like to create much more programming like that so that a person can obtain a certification, whether they're a health coach, whether they're an MD,
0: whatever. So anywhere from anywhere. Prayer around the exactly. country could do that. That would be amazing. Nice right. And,
1: and well, my hope is around the world. So, so because of this virtual world, you know, sure. you know, it's opened up. So I'd love to love to do that. And that's my next step, my next goal. All right. Well, I'm
0: rooting for that to happen. <laughs> Thank you. So switching gears to some rapid fire Q and a, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So how do you start your day? Ah, so on the good
1: days, Elizabeth, when i uh, well rested and I've had a good night's sleep, I force myself to not look at my phone for the first half hour. I read one of my gratitude cards, which I have at my bedside. And whatever it says, I kind of think about it, I absorb it for a few seconds. I, I love when I can, I love to watch the sunrise. And on some days I do a sun salutation yoga just to open up my breathing, get me moving slowly into the day. And then I love to have a morning cup of coffee. I look forward to that. Have a cup of coffee and I unwind just thinking about what my day holds, what is in my schedule. And then about, I try to wait at least a half hour to 45 minutes before I start checking messages. Because once I, once I, I found that once I open my phone or check my email, the day starts. Mm-hmm. you know, the day is upon me. So unless I carve out that time, I don't get it. There are other days when I don't sleep that well and I'm brushed and, and some of that falls away. But I try I try to do that on most days. And then I'm not always hungry first thing in the morning. So I sometimes eat breakfast. I'm not I'm not trying to follow any type of Fasting, but I think it's working it it's, it seems to for me that I just want to eat a slightly later in the morning and then I have my either my cheer pudding or whatever I've prepped during the weekend for that week and then I'm sort of energized for the day.
0: Your favorite
1: mental health hack that would be so in terms of food, so it's a couple of things. The power of a deep breath is not to be undermined. And I think that sometimes we just need that deep breath to reset ourselves in that moment. And if we consent ourselves to do that, it's important. But it's not always possible. I get that. But in terms of food, I love my grandmother's uh what my grandmother taught me, which is uh a golden latte because it has all the all the you know, it's a basically turmeric latte that we would make when I was little. And it has beautiful ingredients in it, which are good for my brain. So to me, that's a a quick and easy fix to, uh, it either gives me, it can be uplifting, it can be uh, soothing. um, And uh, I share the recipe on my Instagram and in my book.
0: Top three supplements for mental health.
1: So interesting. I think that supplements can be very helpful for mental health. I try to guide my patients towards food first, but the reality is we, we don't, We don't eat perfect meals and we don't have perfect foods. So supplementing things like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, especially in the Northeast, and something like magnesium becomes quite important. I feel that people should check their levels for vitamin D and magnesium before supplementing because everyone's body is different. But those are two of the three that are pretty straightforward to supplement for mental well-being.
0: So then along with that, top three foods for mental health. You uh, can only pick three. Oh, I, love, I love
1: all foods. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with extra dark chocolate, which I love. So love extra dark chocolate because little square will do, you, do your brain good. And I'm talking about you know, uh, 70 80% in otaka, natural raw chocolate, and, and just acquiring the taste for it is, is just wonderful. And then turmeric. I always, my, I always bring spices in because they're so... They're such easy hacks. They are simple, salt-free, sugar-free, calorie-free that you can add into foods to flavor them up. And they have such great brain benefits. a so, turmeric a pinch of black pepper. And thirdly, I could never go, hmm, this is hard. It's Who's your favorite pet or your favorite child? It's very hard. <laughs> it's split between my leafy greens, folate in my leafy greens, or my polyphenols on my berries. So gonna, it's a hard one there. <laughs> but those, so I'll give you... You, you oh, well know, you, can have, an you have an extra one.
0: I'll have an extra But those are my go-tos, yeah. Three random things that you're currently loving. So it could be a book, a podcast, or anything. Sure. So
1: I am absolutely loving some of the... New spices and flavors that I'm seeing, interesting recipes that I've. Some of the restaurants have opened up, and at least once a week I, I try a new restaurant, and I'm just excited by the different what I'm seeing in the world, despite the pandemic and despite everything that's been shut down. So I'm loving that because I love, love, clearly love food and, and just the exploration <laughs> of food. I am really revisiting some meditation practices that I, I uh, sometimes am less consistent with and going back to that I not only grew up with, but I really feel needed to be brought back very consistent in my life because I don't feel like if I do it twice a week, it helps me. So bringing that back in is important. And the third thing I would say is just some new music that, that uh, I've been listening to, a, a mix of different forms of jazz, some of the recent sort of pop stuff that's out there, and just exploring, uh, you know, again, even during the pandemic, these interesting form, it, not, not music that uh, the, the genres are all the same, but people have been so creative. Mm. So I'm loving, I'm loving that as well. So we'll keep on the topic of food. Your favorite thing to bake. Oh, my favorite thing to bake. Probably one of the things that I love experimenting with is making, making, you'll appreciate this, my my own version of granola, because I find that they can be more interesting that way. And I can use it in so many different ways. I can have a little snack, you know, a little quarter a cup snack in the afternoon with berries. I can add it onto my chia pudding, but I like I like I like that as well because each time I add in a different seed or I, I switch out what I'm doing, and so it's interesting, you know. And so that's that's one of the things I like. I like to bake. And how about your favorite savory thing to cook? So I I love. I think I've said a few times I love spices. So what I like to do is take say, say a Mexican spice or something from French cuisine, something that I cook all the time, which is Indian cuisine, and then put it into something unusual. So I'll take how you make tandoori spices, but I'll put it onto, or chicken tikka spices, but I'll put it on cauliflower. Oh, you know, I, I, like, I, like, I like switching it up that way so that if someone could, at my table could be eating chicken tikka, but someone else could be having the version with cauliflower. And that way it just creates, and that's how I wrote the recipes for the book as well and so that's one of my one of my favorite things to do and then I do that with other spices as well. Yeah. A meal that you'll never forget. One meal, only one. Oh my god. I do have it. I was very fortunate as part of culinary school, we traveled, we did a school trip with a group of chef trainees to France and we did a food tour of France where we learned the wine regions, the different, say the cheese regions, the champagne region, the and then of course, all of the eating, the different eating um, styles in France. But at the end of the trip, some of my family members joined me and we had, we ate in Lyon at Paul Bocuse's restaurant before he passed away. And I had the honor of meeting him and uh, show, he showed me his kitchen. And I ate at his restaurant and it was probably the highlight of my life. And so blessed to have that experience. And that meal, I still remember it from, I still remember the whole thing. So, What was the highlight of the meal? The meal, uh, the highlight of the meal was uh, the actual soup that he made, which was uh, a truffle mushroom soup. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And that was just, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was was unbelievable. Everything was delicious, but it was such a perfect meal. There was no... Extra seasoning needed, it was so beautifully balanced, it was so well served, and it was such an experience to be at his original restaurant, you know. So that that was definitely the highlight of my life. Mm.
0: I love that. So the last question: what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Self-care. self-care you have one favorite self-care. Ritual?
1: I, I do. So probably my very favorite is practicing, whether it's five minutes, two minutes, 25 minutes, or an hour of some form of mindfulness and meditation. I always find that when I'm consistent about that, my week, my day, my life is better. And so I think it's probably about building that connection with yourself.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the podcast. This was an absolute pleasure. Where can our listeners find you Uh, on social and anywhere else? Thanks so much, Elizabeth. It's lovely to talk to
1: you. Such great questions. Um, So people should follow me on on Instagram and all the social platforms at dr. U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Uma Naidu. Also, uh, subscribe to my website where you'll get my newsletter blogs and updates of all the activities I'm up to, which is umanaidu.md.com. and uh, check out my book. I'd, I'd love to interact with people.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Elizabeth. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.